Good morning. Good morning. It is great to see you here with your post-Thanksgiving smiles. Uh, hopefully you had a great Thanksgiving experience. Uh, of all the things that I'm thankful for, I'm thankful for you. And uh, if you're a visitor here with us this morning, uh, Extra thankful for you that you visit with us. My name is Jason. If I haven't had a chance to come introduce myself to you, I have the honor and privilege of being a lead pastor here at Solid Rock Church, serving with a body of elders to lead our church to glorify Christ in every way. And, uh, and so if you're visiting with us, you're actually visiting at an exciting time in Solid Rock's history. We're at a, we're at a place in our, in our um, journey where God is growing us in some significant ways. Uh, it's exciting times around here, especially uh, we roll into the next service. Many Sundays we're looking for seats, trying to find places for everybody, and so we're excited about that. We've had a team working all year long on, uh, on what our next building project will look like. And so in January at our all-members meeting, we'll be talking more about that research and where we'll be headed next year. Uh, but in addition to uh, making room for more people, as uh, God continues to work here, we're, we're shuffling some things around in terms of staff next year. While we are a growing church, we're still a small church. And so that means uh, limited resources and making sure that we're stewarding every penny to the best that we can to God's glory. And so, uh, so we don't have the money just to go out and hire more staff members as the workload increases. So uh, for the guys who work on staff, especially the ministerial staff, there's a lot of shuffling that takes place. And so uh, almost two and a half years ago, if you were with us at that point in time, we were, th- were without a kids minister. And so uh, in order to cover that, those, that base over there, which is quite a bit of responsibility in the other building, uh, we took two guys who were already on staff, Brian Lamb over student ministry and Cam over our life groups ministry, and said, how about y'all tag team and just cover it? Neither one had kids. I don't even think at the time Brian was married. He was barely married, if anything. And so it, it made tons of sense to put these guys in charge of kids' ministry. Uh, and at the time, it did make sense to the Lord, and he is blessed in so many ways. Uh, but we knew back then that that was just a temporary solution. As the church grows, so does responsibility and workload. And so we're going to make another shuffle in 2015. want to let you know about that firsthand from, from me and then give you a chance to ask staff uh, questions about what that will look like. Um, we'll do our best to answer. So here's what we know so far. Uh, in sitting down with ministerial staff uh, this year, this past fall, the elders sat down with the ministerial staff and talked through current workloads and struggles that they were facing, and, uh, and they were very honest with us, Cam and Brian and also Jason Lewis, who is our, um, our, our music worship minister, sat down and shared with us. And so um, I don't know how much you know about how it works being part-time on staff. That works great if you're like in college or don't have a family. Uh, but whenever you've already got a family in place and kiddos, you need a career, you need a job. And so uh, Jason Lewis, and she's talking with him, uh, he works full-time, has a full-time job, career, family, uh, the whole nine yards, but is also serving here and has been serving at a high capacity for um, over six years now off and on in this role. And one of the things he shared with us is that, you know, it's, to be quite honest with you, with the growing workload, I'm, I'm seeing a time quickly approaching where I won't be able to juggle all the balls of husband and dad and, and music minister and all the things. And so he just was very candid with the elders and said, I, I think there's going to be a time where I'm going to need some relief. And we talked with, with Cam and Brian. We're hearing similar things from them as well. And so um, in meeting with a leadership team and elders over the course of over a month, and, and praying and seeking the Lord, we, we're going to move towards shifting some responsibilities next year, and we wanted you to know about it. And so what we're going to do, um, by Jason Lewis's request, we're going to reduce um, the administrative responsibilities of his worship leading role. Um, still don't feel like that, that time is done for him, that he's still uh, our worship leader and going to continue leading us for another year. Uh, but in order to, to kind of help him balance all the balls, we're going to shift some of the administrative responsibility away from him onto Brian Lamb, 
And, uh, and so Brian's the kind of guy, we just pile it on. He just keeps on trucking. Uh, but in order to help him succeed in what God's called him to do, Brian Lamb, we're going to try to relieve some of the duties in the uh, kids' ministry downstairs, the nursery. So if you have nursery-age kids and you check them in over there, you know who Brian Lamb is. He's always over there helping get things together. So we're going to look for somebody to take his place in that role, to oversee that nursery schedule and organizing volunteers. If you serve in that area, you'll be a part of that as well. But somebody who can also help Cam with the coordinating and administrative responsibilities upstairs with all the kids that are upstairs. Next year, we're going to be looking at things like additional first service ministries for kids, Wednesday night ministries possibly. All these things will only be made possible if we can get Cam some help because he's saying, I'm, I'm tapped out as well. And so, uh, so we're going to make some shuffles, and we wanted you to know that, that Brian Lamb's going to be helping cover some of the responsibilities in here for Jason Lewis to kind of give him some breathing room. Uh, Jason Martin, who was standing on this side, is going to step in every couple months and just take a Sunday to give him a break so that everybody's enjoying this calling that they've been called to, and it's, it's not a burden. And uh, so we wanted you to know that those things are going to be happening. I'm going to send out an email tomorrow also overviewing all this. And so feel free to reply to that email if you have specific questions about those things. Overall, we're excited uh, about what God is doing and just trying to discern what his will is here among us as we try to cover all the bases. So thanks for listening. If you're a visitor, uh, there's just some free information so you kind of know where we're headed next year. A lot of exciting things happening around the church. All right, we're going to be in Philippians um, chapter 1. And... uh, and so I want to take just a moment to get us uh, all on board at the same place. Um, so uh, we've been working through this, uh, this book of Philippians in the New Testament, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, these believers, and uh, it's a very personal letter. If you have been to seminary or you are a theological uh, geek like myself, uh, you, you know that when you pull apart a, a letter or a writing in the Bible, there are certain textual features you're looking for. There's a way that the original author framed it. So there, there are a number of ways we can approach um, these books. And so, so you know kind of what we're doing. Um, I'm, I'm looking at these primary themes uh, uh, that, that the Apostle Paul is writing with and allowing that to kind of organize our sermon series. So there's other ways to go through and break up the chapters and which verses to cover. Uh, we're going to finish chapter 1 today. And uh, on the onset, getting ready for this series and meeting with staff and talking about the book of Philippians, one of the things that stands out when you read it as a whole letter is this theme of rejoicing and finding joy in the midst of persecution. And that seems to be a primary theme of the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter from prison. And so we are allowing that that theme of rejoicing. So today, the title of the sermon is uh, Rejoicing in Things That Last. And so in order to really have that conversation, we need to talk very openly and candidly about the issues of our culture and some of the issues that we uh, ourselves face in finding joy in things that don't last. And uh, and I tried to think up of a list of everything I could think of from our culture that would kind of land on somebody, but the reality is we, by and large, live our lives attempting to find satisfaction and joy in things that don't last. And I don't know what your list is. I I know what my list is. I'll just be honest with you. One of the things that I find a great deal of joy in is uh, eating sushi. And so, yes, uncooked dead fish. Uh, and, but, you know, the, the, the problem with sushi, to get really good sushi, it's expensive. So we don't get to do it that often. So if we know that we're going to have sushi, like we plan ahead, we chart out the week, what we're going to eat. We want to have just the right amount of room for that sushi. And, uh, and I think about it all day long. Just, I can just taste it. The explosion of textures and flavors. And, and I look forward to sushi. 
But if any of you ever eat sushi or any Asian food for that matter, you know that the, the benefits that you reap from eating that meal don't last very long. I mean, an hour later, and it's like you didn't even eat. It's gone, and you're ready to eat again, right? And so as, as maybe small as that may be, I know that, honestly, that's something I find joy in. Waiting for that special meal, and then what? It's gone in a moment. Many of you uh, were looking forward to Thanksgiving dinner, the ones who weren't cooking it, and you just couldn't wait for whatever your favorite item was, the sweet potatoes or the green bean casserole or whatever your family item is, and you ate too much of it, and then in just a short while, the joy that you were anticipating turned into groaning and a long nap and trying to recover and sugar coma and all these sorts of things. And so there's just a few small examples of how we, we long for, we look forward to things that bring us momentary satisfaction. We do it at other times of the year, uh, the, the tanning bed industry, right? I'm not knocking on you if you go tanning, don't go home. See, the preacher said don't tan. I'm just saying, like, we find joy in things, we spend a lot of money on things, we build our schedule around things that don't last, especially me. Pasty white, I go get in a tanning bed, it takes a good two or three weeks every day to, like, have any kind of tone, but then I miss it for three days and I'm back to pasty white, and I think, wow, all that work and effort for something that didn't last. New cars, Right? We all go into these six-year notes with these cars thinking, I'm saying the same things, right? I'm going to drive this thing till the wheels fall off, till the engine blows up. And, and, and it's not but six, six, 12 months in, we're thinking, wow, this car doesn't feel new anymore. All the joy I had driving off the lot has now turned into this $500 a month payment or whatever it is that's now a burden. And so what we found temporary joy in has now faded. And we could go on and on, couldn't we? Christmas is coming up. How many of us will go out and spend more money than we should on items that somebody wants, wrap them, put them under the tree, just waiting to watch them open and see that expression of joy? And, And if you have kids, you know how temporary that joy is, right? Like in a moment, it's gone. And the toy's broken or the batteries are dead or the Ninja Turtles aren't cool anymore, you know? And so we are a culture and a society that seems to be driven to rejoice in things, to find joy in things. The problem, the issue is that we seek after joy in temporary things, don't we? Well, Paul is going to highlight a few key issues today and call us as a church to rejoice in things that last, things that matter, things that are still here tomorrow when today is gone. And so we're going to pick this up in verse 12. I'm going to work through verse 14 to begin with, if you want to join me. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we put black hardback Bibles in the seats underneath you. If you see one of those that's not left there by accident, that's for you. Feel free to grab one and turn with me. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12, Paul continues the opening of his letter. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So in order to fully understand what Paul is talking about here, we've got to figure out what has happened to him. And so we know the background of, of what's happened. We know that Paul's been in prison. And so directly, that's probably what he has on his mind. We'll get to that in just a moment. But indirectly, uh, there's a lot that has happened to Paul. In another letter that he wrote to the uh, Christians in, in Corinth, in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, he lists some of the things that have happened to him. Just a, just a few I'll, I'll, I'll spout off here, uh, starting 
Uh, let's start in verse 23. If you want to jump to 2 Corinthians, you can. Uh, this is chapter 11, 23. Uh, Paul is talking about how he's out of his mind. He said, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Lots happened to Paul. He continues, five times I received at the hands of the Jew the 40 lashes less one. They believed that if you received all 40 lashes with the, with the whip, the cat of nine's tails, you would, you would die. So they would beat the person 39 times. He says, that's happened to him five times. He's had that beating of 39 lashings. Not only that, once I was stoned. That's where they throw rocks at you until you die. Three times I was shipwrecked, which is, you know, there's no radar, no beacon, no Coast Guard. This is like grab a piece of wood and hang on for dear life. That's your only chance of making it here. Shipwrecked. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Just one of those time frames. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, though many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold, in cold and exposure. So, while directly we knew that Paul had on his mind his, his current imprisonment, when he says that all these things that have happened to him, I can't help but think that he's thinking back through all these things that have happened to him, these hardships, these experiences of suffering, the things that have happened to him because of his mission to see the name of Christ exalted among the nations. And so as he makes this comment, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, directly, we know that Paul's in prison here, and it's not his first imprisonment. A matter of fact, um, the, the way that Paul came to know these Philippian uh, now believers was that he wanted to take the gospel to what is now modern-day Europe. And Philippi was this Roman uh, city that was the first stop along the way. And we know that along the way, we, from the book of Acts, as it recounts this journey, that he met Lydia and a few other ladies and shared the gospel with them. They responded, became believers, and a church was birthed. But shortly after that, Paul was uh, cruising around with, uh, with Silas, and, and, and it seems like Luke was there as well because he's recounting the story in first-person plural, we, we. So it looks like Luke and Paul and Silas were there in Philippi. And after they had been there for several days, they kept passing by this little girl who was basically demon-possessed. And this demon possession was allowing her to tell the future. And so her, she was a slave girl, and her owners were making a lot of, a lot of money off of this. And so as Paul and Silas and maybe even Luke passed by, she made the comment, this little girl made a comment, this prophetic comment, that these were the servants of the Most High God. And uh, it's funny because I wish that I could say that the Apostle Paul and his wisdom and his humility and his patience and his kindness and compassion, he knelt down and spent some time with this girl. But Luke says, because they became annoyed with her, <laughs> that Paul rebuked and cast out the demon from this girl, set her free out of his annoyance. God still worked. And, uh, and as you can imagine, her owners were a little perturbed, major source of income. So needless to say, Paul and Silas were imprisoned. This was the first time they were in, in, uh, in Philippi. And so uh, something significant happens that will help us understand what Paul's getting at here. Uh, that night, about midnight, Paul and Silas were singing worship songs. 
What, a, what an interesting thing to be doing in prison at midnight, worshiping the Most High God. And, and, and Luke says that the prisoners were listening. And then something amazing happens. An earthquake happens in that region in such a way that it shakes the foundations of the jail and it causes the doors to come unjammed, the cell doors of the prison, and they open. Well, as you can imagine, when the jailer returns back to the scene and he realizes that the earthquake has, not, has allowed the doors to open, he's a little freaked out because his life is dependent on keeping those prisoners locked down. And so he's actually going to take his own life. And so Paul and Silas are there and they say, stop, stop, stop. Don't take your own life. We're, we're all here. We're all present. Don't take your own life. Let me just read a few verses from that, from that story from Acts 16. I'll pick it up in 25. Actually, I'll pick it up in 29. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And so this is what happened. So he's going to kill himself. Paul says, no, 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 don't kill yourself. All the prisoners are here. We're all here. So the jailer, he called for the lights. He rushed in and in trembling and fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Verse 34. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so there's just a snapshot of something that happened through Paul's imprisonment. And so as he's thinking about his current imprisonment, I think he probably has this on his mind as well because uh, as soon as he's released from prison, he revisits Lydia. And so we know that they were very familiar with what happened to Paul in prison. Now, now how do you do that? How do you find yourself in prison for the sake of Christ and, and not let that knock you off kilter? You stay focused. Your heart continues to rejoice to the point where you're singing songs at midnight in a, in a cold, dark, damp prison. He rejoiced. Why? Because his temporary, momentary discomfort, suffering, and hardship was worth forfeiting for the sake of the, somebody else's eternity. The next morning when he's baptizing this prison guard, the joy, right, of saying, you know what, Silas, I don't like that we got in prison, but it was worth it, wasn't it? Yeah, it was worth it. Because why? Because what's eternal matters more than what happens to me in this moment or in this temporary life. And so as we read this letter and that Paul's now writing to the Christians in Philippi, these same believers who knew that story, he says in this verse, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So we know by this time that Paul's writing this letter, he's been arrested several times. Because when he said he had been in prison three times, that was before he wrote this letter. We know that after that, he was in prison in Jerusalem and then transferred, which is probably where he is now, transferred to Rome and waiting under a Roman guard. And so what he's saying is this, I, I, it's not fun to be in prison. I mean, this is first century prison. This is not down the street, you know, in, in this prison with TVs and electricity and 
heating and cooled air and, you know, civil rights. It's, this, is like, this is like if you die, well, that's just one less case we have to worry about, imprisonment. This is where Paul is, and he's saying what? I don't like being in prison, but my imprisonment leads to the advancement of the gospel. Therefore, I rejoice. How do you have that kind of mindset? I think Paul answers that question by this, by rejoicing in things that last, by looking at the world and rather than seeking out and looking for joy in temporary things that make us happy today and are gone tomorrow, look for the things that will last. Hang your joy on the hook of things that are eternal, things that really matter. If you're taking notes, in Christ, I choose to rejoice in the eternity of others. Now think about the application of that statement. What does that mean for you and I? That you and I would rejoice in the eternity of others. Well, ultimately what it means is that you and I have given ourselves to the mission of Christ. Whether that's here in this community, here in this serving here in this church, going to the Philippines with us next June, going to Flint, Michigan, spring break, wherever that is that God's calling you to participate in that mission, right? It means that you and I have said, I'm willing to give up the time. I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to volunteer. I'm willing to say, you know what? Say no to temporary joy and satisfaction for the sake of what is eternal. Think about those who are going to Flint, Michigan. Uh, That's spring break, right? And so that's the time of year when we need that break from school, from from all the things that are going on. We need need to rest. We need a break. Those who are going to Flint, Michigan are saying, you know what? I'll take that break and I'll give it to the Lord. I'll, I'll give it to the Lord. But why would you do that? Does it make sense? Why would you take something that you've worked hard for, you've earned, you need, and then go give it to others? Because, hopefully this is your motive, you've found a joy, you've found a way to rejoice in the eternity of others over your temporary situation. It's not convenient, it's not cheap, it's not easy to be in the mission of Christ. Whether you're serving here in the kids' building or you're headed to the Philippines. Both cost you something. Why would you, why would you pay that price? Hopefully it's because you've found your joy in the eternity of others. Whether that other is a three-year-old toddler downstairs in our kids' building. Or a three-year-old toddler in a village in the Philippines. The eternity of that child matters more than your temporary joy or satisfaction. When you're struggling maybe at times to get out of bed on Sunday... Rather than doing it reluctantly, think about that. I'll never forget um, last October in the Philippines with, uh, with Cam and, and, uh, and Mike, two of our guys that went. Um, they, they, they had the privilege of taking this 10-plus kilometer hike from the village we were in to another village that you couldn't get to by road. And from all accounts that I've heard, it was a pretty treacherous adventure. And, and they really didn't know how much further they had to go. So it's not like they were running a, a 10K and they could mark it off. They're going up and down mountains and through rivers, and they had no idea. Are we going to do this all day and all night? When are we going to get there? And I'll never forget Mike's response when, he, when they got back and were recounting the story, how he was beginning to get a little bit weary and frustrated and tired. Like, how much longer, how many more mountains do we have to climb over? And then as they stepped foot into the village, he saw um, a, a, little, uh, a little girl, a little toddler girl about the same age as his own daughter. And in that moment... His heart rejoiced and said, you know what? Her eternity is worth it. All the discomfort of what I just went through, all the expenses I had to pay to get on three planes, a motorcycle, a bus, and bamboo rafts to get here, that little girl's eternity is worth it. 
This is the same thing Paul is saying here. Rejoicing in the eternity of others. As Paul continues in verse 15, he's going to hit an interesting topic that I'm glad we're going to be able to hit in a small way today. We're actually going to pick this up the first Sunday in 2015, and our first series is going to deal with this topic. Uh, but here's what he says. Now, he's in prison, and he's listening. He's hearing reports about other people out there preaching the gospel. And, uh, and, and Paul always has a strong opinion about things, and he doesn't always get along with everybody. So some of those people out there are comrades. They're fellow soldiers in Christ, guys he gets along with. Some of them aren't. Some of them are guys he's had confrontation with. Some of them are guys that he disagrees on small things over. But nevertheless, here's what he says. Some of those people out there indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So he's just calling it how he sees it. He's writing this letter from prison. I'm hearing reports on what's going on. Some of those out there who are preaching are preaching out of goodwill. Others, seems like they're preaching out of envy and rivalry, like they've got something to prove. Now I'm in prison. They can advance their small agendas. Rivalry. So here's what he says. Verse 16. The latter, those who preach out of goodwill, they do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. However, verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerity, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So at this point, Paul is just calling it like it is. I'm hearing reports. I'm hearing that some people out there are saying, well, see, Paul's in prison, so obviously he's wrong. You need to listen to us. And there was a sense of rivalry in the early church. What a strange thing. Good thing we don't deal with rivalry today, right, in church? And, uh, and so Paul is writing it, and here, but look at what he says. So at this point, we're expecting Paul to go hard, right? To go hard on those who are coming up against him, who are maybe tainting his reputation, who are, uh, who are advancing their ministry out of some sense of rivalry and some sense of proving that theirs is, their agenda is better than his. Here's what he says. Such a strange and peculiar thing. Verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. In that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Now, this will give us an opportunity to have a conversation about what it means to have a unity of faith versus a lack of unity of faith with somebody. I think that, um, by and large, in our current church culture, there's a lack of education on this particular topic. Matter of fact, I'll hear uh, people talk about churches of a different religion, and what they mean is a different denomination. There's a difference between denomination versus religion. And so what, what Paul's getting at here is not that we should, we should uh, be excited about um, having false motives when we're doing ministry, but he's just saying, hey, here's the thing. At the end of the day, I mean, I don't like what's happening in the temporary, but here at the end of the day, here's what matters. The gospel is advancing and people are being saved. Now, there is a, there's a significant difference, right, uh, between... Believing in the same gospel, but differing in smaller philosophies or smaller or minor the, the, theological differences versus believing an altogether different gospel, right? So an altogether different gospel would be you're saved by works. 
that somehow God is impressed by the work that you do for him. And the more work you do for him, the more impressed he is with you. And so therefore, your position in heaven will be better if you work harder. Or the fact that you get in at all is based on how hard you work. Okay, that's, that's a false gospel. That's different. If you believe that, we don't have a unity of faith. Because we believe that we are saved by faith alone. And by faith, God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. We can't earn it. We can't pay God back. Right? Altogether different gospel. Another example would be if you believe a gospel that says God wants you to be uh, wealthy, healthy, and have lots of friends. And if you have enough faith, God is obligated to do whatever you asked. That's a different gospel, right? That's not a gospel we believe in. It's not the gospel that Paul is preaching right here from prison. He's saying we, pre we are preaching a gospel that allows us to rejoice in things that are eternal, not things here on earth. If my health is gone tomorrow, I don't quit rejoicing. If my finances are gone tomorrow, I don't quit rejoicing. If I don't get out of prison, if the earthquake doesn't happen, I will still rejoice. I'll still sing these worship songs. Altogether different gospel. So what does it mean to have a unity of faith? It means this. So here at Solid Rock, we say this often. We want to land hard where the Bible lands hard, and we want to land soft where the Bible lands soft. No theological conversations are off the table, right? But we won't allow small things to divide us. You can be hardcore Calvinist, hardcore Arminian, right? As long as we believe the same gospel, we're saved by faith in Christ. Your view on God's sovereignty may differ, but we can still have a unity of faith. We may not fully agree on how the covenants unfold in the Bible or the exact timing of the return of Christ, but our gospel is the same. Get into philosophy differences. We may not agree on style of music, right? We may not agree on the architecture or the, the, the aesthetics of a building or the color of the carpet or on the style of church government, right? But these things don't mean we don't have a unity of faith. This is what Paul is getting at here. I rejoice in those who preach the same gospel. I wouldn't do it like they do it. I wouldn't. I'm not excited about the way they are tarnishing my reputation and, and, and boasting, you know, pushing their own agendas forward. But here's the thing. He would say to us, I can get over that. I can get over my own hurt here. Why? Because my temporary hurt in this life is not worth comparing to eternity. And so as Christ's followers, we are to rejoice in biblical truths. Not Biblical controversies, not the small, minor things, but the things that are non-negotiable. We're going to spend the first uh, couple months of 2015 walking through our statement of faith. These are, the, uh, these are the tenets that we don't negotiate on. These are the things that define our unity of faith. We can disagree on, on a, a variety of things theologically and have all kinds of fun, robust dialogues over different theological differences, but these are the things we don't negotiate on. It's our statement, collectively, of faith, the things we believe. So, Paul is saying, I rejoice, I rejoice that the gospel is being advanced. And so, as Christ's followers, we rejoice, I rejoice in biblical truths. Biblical truths. Things that don't change. Things that are anchors to our faith. 
We could go on and on about the, the, the small things that we could dispute and disagree over. But what we're talking about here are the things that we don't dispute over. Faith alone in Christ alone. The authority of Scripture. Our Trinitarian God, as much as we don't fully understand the Trinity, we, nevertheless we believe it, that God has manifested himself in three persons, yet is the same God. We don't, we don't negotiate on communion. We take communion. Christ commanded us to take communion. We don't negotiate on that. Baptism, to express outwardly our inward faith, it's something we don't negotiate on because we, we've been commanded by our Savior to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Non-negotiables. I'm going to leave that for next year. We'll talk some more about those things. As Paul continues in his letter, in addition to rejoicing in the eternity of others and biblical foundational truths, in verse 19, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So what's the this? He's talking about his imprisonment, right? This will turn out for my deliverance. What does he mean by that? Well, we're about to get really an intimate view of what he's thinking about as he's sitting there in prison wrestling over his deliverance. We know on one hand he's praying for and they're praying for a temporary deliverance, that he'll be released from prison, that he'll be able to reestablish and get back engaged in the ministry that Christ called him to. But we also know that there's an eternal deliverance that Paul's going to talk about here as he continues on. So here's what he says. Verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life, temporary deliverance, or by death and eternal deliverance. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. If God decides to deliver me from this temporary situation of imprisonment, fantastic. I'll live for Christ. There's more fruitful labor for me to be involved in. I get to come see you. I get to encourage you. I get to share the gospel with others. Yet, which which I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, there are some who would say that this is Paul having suicidal thoughts. Um, The only problem I have with that label is this. He's not contemplating taking his own life. He's contemplating what is quite possibly going to happen to him as he's in prison in Rome, that he may be facing a death sentence. Already several brothers in Christ have been been killed. Stephen was was stoned. Uh, We know that James the Apostle has already been killed. We know that this same year, plus or minus a few months, James the brother of Jesus has already been killed killed for his faith. And so we know that Paul, in his mind, knows that death is a very likely reality for him. See, I don't think he's sitting there in prison prison saying, oh, this is just horrible. So dark, so lonely here. I think I'm going to take my own life. He's truly contemplating, which would be better? If, If I stay alive and God delivers me and they let me out, what would that look like? Well, to live as Christ, fruitful labor. However, what, what, what should happen if they sentence me to death? I mean, at this point in time in Rome, you know who the emperor is? Nero. You talk about a cruel and wicked Roman emperor who was looking for any excuse to blame and to kill Christians. Paul knew it. They may throw me in the, uh, they may drag me out into the Colosseum, let me get attacked by tigers or 
right? Reenact some kind of Roman Greek war and I'm just out there as a slave and I get killed, like what the scenes from Gladiator, that kind of thing. They may just let me starve to death. What is he saying? Now, if I'm, if I'm to leave this life, guess what? I'm not going to quit rejoicing because that's actually better. I actually get to be with the one in whom I am preaching and proclaiming, the one that I'm telling you. Like, this is the one you want for life. This is the one you want to find your rejoicing in. I get to go be with him. I'm good either way. Which one shall I choose? But look at what he says. I love his perspective here. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary. Why is that necessary for you to stay here, Paul, in your suffering? He says it, on your account. While I would be way more excited to go and be with Jesus, this isn't about me right now. Wow, what a deep and profound and humbling statement. I believe that Paul believed in his core that the moment his body died here on earth, he was, he was gone to be with the Lord. He believed it with everything that he had. And yet, what does he say? You know what? I'll wait on that. As excited as I am about that, I'll wait on that. If staying here means that I can help you. It's necessary on your account. 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. Progress is the same Greek word used in verse 12 to talk about advancing the gospel. So he was, he was rejoicing the gospel was advanced early on. Now he's rejoicing in the believer's growth. Their spiritual growth is being advanced. And he knows that Christ keeps me here. I get to help and be used by God to watch you grow more. To become more rooted in your faith. To see more of your friends and family become believers. To see the gospel advanced. Your advancement, the gospel's advancement. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. For your progress and joy in the faith. So while Paul is, Paul is saying, what I hear Paul saying is, you know what? I know that I would be filled with joy to leave this place and go be with the Lord. I'm going I'm to hold off on that joy that I can be part of your joy here on earth. For your faith, the joy in the faith. Verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And what a place to be in, contemplating life and death, not from a suicidal perspective, like this is so painful, I just want to give up, but truly thinking about where joy is found. And if I stay with you, it's going to be joy. I get to watch you grow. I get to keep praying for you and that rogue uncle that you're praying for, you asked me to pray for, and he's just so obstinate to the gospel. I just keep praying. I get to watch him come to the Lord and, or to leave. Wow, that's exciting. Like, I don't even know fully what that's going to look like. I can just see it in part right now, but I know it's going to be awesome. Man, what a place to be. I was, at the, um, I was at the foot of a hospital bed. I've mentioned this to you before a few weeks ago. Um, and I was at the foot of Joe Warren's father, uh, a believer, a longtime believer, a man in his 80s, godly man, a man who loved the Lord. He had fought the good fight. He had finished the race, and it was time. His body has said, I'm done. I'm done. And he knew it, and we knew it. The family knew it. Made the decision to take him off of oxygen. They invited me to, to observe what was taking place. And while it was hard to watch, I truly watched a man who believed in Christ step out of this temporary life into what is eternal. Facing the same moment that Paul was facing, 
said, you know what? I'm going to miss my family. I'm going to miss the joy of watching my grandkids grow up and some that are still not even believers yet, watching them become believers. And, and all the joy that is to be had here, it's time to go be with the Lord. And got to, got to witness that. See, this is where Paul is, but you know what he's saying? I'm not done yet. I haven't finished the race. There's still work to be done. If you're taking notes, in Christ, I choose to rejoice in the growing faith of others. Now, we're talking about big sacrifices for the sake of others here. Um, However, I think it plays out very practically in the way we serve Christ in the church and, again, in our community and to the ends of the earth. And, and here at Solid Rock, we, we never want anybody serving, volunteering out of guilt, obligation, or fear that Brian Lamb's going to be mad at you. That's for our nursery volunteers. We want you serving out of a sense of joy, knowing that your investment, your sacrifice of time and resources matters for somebody else's spiritual growth. Why does our tech team show up? Before 7 a.m. every Sunday morning. I don't know. Is it because they love gadgets? Some days they probably enjoy it. But you know what? Ultimately, that sacrifice is worth it because them getting here and getting ready and getting everything set up, it leads to our spiritual encouragement and growth. It's worth it when you think of it like that. It's definitely not worth it when you look at what they get paid because they all work for free. Same with our kids' volunteers, our nursery volunteers, our greeters. Life group leaders, you talk about a sacrifice, life group leaders, high five right now. Pow, pow, pow. It's a lot of work. Getting the house ready, organizing it, making sure everybody's on task, and, and, then, and then leading the whole discussion, and then dealing with all the people who aren't happy with the, things that, the way things went. And like just, it's, just, it's laborsome to lead a life group. But hear me say this, life group leaders, it's worth it. It is. Because our temporary inconvenience and labor is worth it to see the eternity of somebody else and the spiritual growth of somebody else. It's worth it. I mean, surely if imprisonment is worth it, leading a life group is worth it. Serving in kids' ministry is worth it. Showing up early on Sundays to pick up the trash around the campus is worth it. Why? Because we find our joy in things that last, not in the things of this moment. To wrap up, verse 27, we'll finish out the chapter. He says, only, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Pretty big statement. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind and striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul is saying, all the afflictions and hardships that I've faced are worth it. But guess what? You're engaged in the same conflicts. And so as Christ followers, we rejoice in things that are eternal. In Christ, I choose to rejoice in the things that are eternal. And I really appreciate the way Paul has summarized 
what he's already covered, what we've covered in the last three sermons here. Look at what he says. First of all, standing firm in unity with the community of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. That was week number one in Philippians. We rejoice in our koinonia, our fellowship, our unity, our, our community that we have in Christ. We rejoice in that. That's eternal, right? That matters. That's worth the sacrifice. Look at the next thing he says. Not only that, not only standing firm in one spirit, but also we are with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's why we don't say our, that um, we will the, start over. That's why we try not to say that we are sending a mission team to the Philippines next year. What we'd like to say is we are going to the Philippines. Whether you go or stay, we are going to the Philippines. We're striving side by side. Many of you have signed up for the Christmas store. Others of you wish you could, but you had other obligations. It doesn't matter. We're all doing the Christmas store. We, side by side. We've talked about volunteers here on Sunday mornings, right? For the person who's watching the, 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 the toddlers right now, that person is striving side by side with me on the same mission right now and with you. This is our church, our mission, side by side, striving together. That's eternal. We can rejoice in that. We may not always agree on the, you know, our favorite NFL teams or favorite college teams or which sport is better or whether or not baseball is even a real sport. We may not agree on all those things. We don't find our joy in those temporary things. We rejoice in this knowing that you and I are on the same mission together. And the last thing he mentioned here, he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. This last thing is this, standing firm in my faith in Christ. Beautiful overview of the reasons we have to rejoice. Our community, our unity of faith we have with one another. A community that isn't shaken and can't be ripped apart by small disagreements. It's tight, knit together, welded community of Christ. We can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in this mission that we're on together, striving side by side, and we can rejoice by standing firm in our own salvation. So on the onset, we looked at this and says, how does Paul, writing from prison, knowing that he might be facing death, rejoice? And again, I say rejoice, because he rejoices in things that last. Remember where we started this conversation? What are we prone to? We're prone to seek and find joy in things that don't last. A couple of questions of reflection as we wrap up this morning. I just wonder this. If I ask somebody who knows you well, that knows you well, what things would they say cause you to rejoice? Let's think about the list of things that they would say, whether it's your children or your spouse or a good friend. I've mentioned some of them. I rejoice in sushi. I rejoice in other things, just being vulnerable with you. But what would they say? What are some of the temporary things that you find joy in? It's okay to enjoy life. I'm not saying don't enjoy life. Just don't build your faith upon it, right? Don't build your identity in small temporary things, but it's okay to enjoy your Thanksgiving meal, some pumpkin pie with some homemade whipped cream. Enjoy it. So what are the things on, the, on your list of things that you enjoy that are temporary? 
And then as you continue to think about that, what are the things that bring you joy that are eternal? What are those things? Seeing somebody else laugh, seeing somebody else find joy, seeing somebody else find Jesus. I just wonder where we are. Do we truly consider the things on the eternal list as more important than the things on the temporary list? I wonder if you and I could have this same mindset as Paul. I'm going to ask this final question. How do you think you would react if the temporary things that bring you joy were suddenly taken away? Just a question for you to ponder. How do you think you would react? Maybe it's your health, your home, your job, one of your hobbies. If these things that are temporary were taken away from you, I mean, Paul, I'm sure, would have enjoyed a good game of golf. Wouldn't get in playing golf anymore. If it was all stripped away and all that was left was what is eternal. I want to leave you with that thought as we pray together and prepare to respond to the Lord this morning. And I want to end here by saying this, that if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and your question is the same as the jailer from Acts 16, what do we need to do to be saved? The, the answer is still the same. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him and trust in him. By faith alone, you are saved. What does that mean? It means your sins are forgiven. God counts you as righteous and perfect and holy. It means that you've been welded and knit together with this beautiful community of God's family. The list goes on and on. But ultimately what it means is you've been ushered and brought into a relationship with the God of the universe. He wants to walk with you daily by trusting in Christ and Christ alone. You know, the cross is more than just an emblem or an icon of our faith. It's the place that God displayed his love. He sent his son to die on the cross for us. He resurrected from the dead that if we believe in him, we would be saved. I want you to know that invitation is open to you today. Um, prayer partners, as always, I'll ask you to be available at the front and the back. They'll have lanyards on. We'd love to pray with you about anything going on in your life, talk with you, um, especially if you're here today and you're thinking, I, I want to find out more about becoming a Christian. These are the people who are prepared to talk with you about that. If today you've found that, you know what, my list of temporary satisfactions is a little too long and my list of eternal satisfactions is a little too short, maybe today would just be a day of shifting those priorities, asking the Lord to do that work in your life. God, give me, give me this perspective that Paul has, that I could rejoice in suffering if everything temporary was taken away. Let's respond to the Lord now. I'm going to pray for us as the prayer partners come forward and our worship team comes down. Let's respond.